If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Ulysses S. Grant. He'll be answering our call on March 5th, 1877, in his first full day of being a private citizen, following eight years serving as President of the United States, which of course followed four bloody years leading the North to victory in the Civil War. In his youth, Ulysses could not figure out what he wanted to do. His father was an exceptional businessman and a role model that gently nudged Ulysses to go to West Point Military Academy, where he graduated 21st of 39. In the first half of this podcast, you're going to learn the circumstances that shaped Grant into the honorable, fearless, duty-bound leader that he became, how he managed this while not being able to stand the sight of blood, and how these traits developed into an advantage on every battlefield, including Shiloh, the battle that shocked the nation, killing more men in 36 hours than had died in all previous American wars combined. Later, you'll hear about why he turned down President Lincoln's invitation to Ford Theater that would have prevented the assassination had he attended. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and tanners everywhere, I give you Ulysses S. Grant. Hello, President Grant, is that you? It is indeed. Sir, my name is Tony Dean, and I am thrilled to speak with you. I'm actually calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're Indeed. holding, yes, the device that you're holding in your hand, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing nine feet from one another, and it also allows me to share a recording of this conversation with people around the world. And sir, considering the challenges that you overcame in your life and service of, of our country, um, we have so much that we can learn for you, uh, from you, and I was hoping that I could ask you some questions, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Are there any questions that I could answer for you first? I would ask Mr. Dean if you, you say this is a smart phone. Did you not? I did, yes, that's correct. Is it smarter than I am? <laughs> well, I hate to say this, especially considering how much I've read about your life, but I think that it's smarter than all of us. The, <laughs> the amount of technology in this device, it was enough to actually allow us later in the world to actually travel to the moon. So, yeah, I think it probably is smarter than both of us. That, that's a comfort. I, I'm not intimidated by something being smarter than I am. Indeed, one of the major reasons I did not want to attend the United States Military Academy was because I felt that I did not have an education strong enough to pass the entrance exam, which would have been embarrassing. I had no doubt of my intellect. I just had some concerns about my education. I have no doubt to this day about my intellect. I was just concerned whether to be wary of this device or not. But no matter, no matter. You've, you've asked ways my feelings, Mr. Dean. Proceed. 
Well, and actually that's what I was going to ask you about first because that that's how you got into the military to begin with is you, you joined at a, a fairly young age, didn't you? I was 17 years old. I had turned 17 on April the 27th of 1839 and the next month in May of 1839 I was on my way to West Point. Did you want I to go? I didn't want to go, but I <laughs> I did not I did not want to go to West Point. There's something of a tale that hangs thereby. Would you like me to relate it to you? It's yes, please. Please. Well, I grew up in Georgetown, Ohio, uh, which is in the southwest corner of Ohio or down about middle way of the southern border of Ohio, some 40, 45 miles southeast of Cincinnati to give people an idea of where that is. I was born at Point Pleasant, Ohio, on the banks of the Ohio River, which I am sure you're aware is uh, the May is Mr. Mason and Mr. Dixon's line mm-hmm. separating the north from the south. So I was born on Mason and Dixon's line. When I was 11 months old, my family moved about 10 miles inland to a little uh, village of Georgetown, which had indeed been founded just a year or so in 1821, a year or so before my birth. It's a new little town, some 22 buildings and so forth, very small town, and I grew up there. And I would also tell you, in talking about my going to the United States Military Academy, if you look at a map of America at that time in 1839, when I was a lad of 17, Brown County, Ohio, Claremont, Ohio, Georgetown, Ohio, are right on the frontier, essentially, of the western expansion. And even at that early date, and even though the United States Military Academy was only founded in 182, and we're talking 36 years after it was founded, it was a young institution. But even so, by that time, there'd been five men to graduate from West Point by the time I started in 1839. Only five people had graduated? Already. Yes, sir. Okay. So, and, and I stress, Georgetown was pretty much on the edge of civilization before jumping out for those pioneers that went across the country as far as the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. So I had a great deal of pressure to do well. Indeed, the only way I got in was because my very best friend, best friend ever had, Bart Bailey, Bartlett G. Bailey, Bartlett George Bailey, year older than I was, grew up at the home. His, he was in the family of Dr. Bailey, the local physician, and their home was immediately behind my home. So we grew up a few hundred feet apart. Bart had gone on to West Point and had been asked to leave. So he, he was not successful academically, and I, I don't think he wanted to be there either. But his departure, now see, this is one of the ironies of my life, Mr. Dean, the failure of the best friend I ever had to that time, his failure created the opening for me to get into West Point. Mm 
I had a great deal of angst at that irony, that, that oxymoron of friendship and failure and opening a door for me. And, and there are those who will tell you that that accident of fate, the failure of my best friend to make an opening for me in the academy, which would not have otherwise been open to me. How did that come about? Did Bart contact you or did your parents find out or did you find out and then you just slipped into that spot? Or I mean, how did that come about? Ah, uh, thereby hangs another little tale, as the bard would say. <laughs> so I've established for you how an opening came about for me. But let okay. me back up a bit. Now, this, this all occurred in April and May of 1839. But in December of 1838, I was a lad of 16. And one Sunday morning, my father at breakfast told me, list. My family called me Liz or Ulyss. He said, Liz, I need you to work in the tannery with me today. And I stiffened uh, <laughs> because I, I, I absolutely loathed working in that tannery, hated it. My job was to go into the beam room, which is where they brought in the new hides of the cattle, threw them over the beam, and I had to scrape off from the inside of the hide all of the remnants of its previous owner. Oh, that sounds awful. And, and it was ghastly. And to this day, I cannot stand the sight of blood, which may seem ironic to you, but... Okay, we uh, got to stop right I, there. we got to stop right there for a minute. You can't stand the sight of blood from working in your father's tannery with leather. I mean, I feel like you have two stories to finish now, but how, how did you deal with that on the battlefield? I had to steel myself to put up with the gore and the carnage. One never becomes accustomed to that. If one does, one needs to seek some, some help from someone who knows the, the workings of the human mind. We become inured to killing and warfare. We become inured to death and destruction. But if you ever get to where you, you're just accustomed to it, you need some help. I was able to steel myself. To that, and, and in the, the heat of battle and combat and the, the active engagement of my faculties during combat or during campaign, I was able to overcome a natural or, or a developed inclination for the nausea side of blood. And oh it goes back to my days as a, as a boy working in the family tannery. Indeed, when I eat, I won't eat anything that walks on two legs. I don't eat chicken, turkey, duck, goose. I don't eat anything that walks on two legs. Hmm. My favorite meat is a pork chop. I like a good steak, too. I will eat steak, but I prefer a pork chop. But when meat is served me, it has got to be burned, blackened. When I cut into a piece of meat, if anything red comes out of it, I push the plate away and I, I leave the table. I become wow. nauseated. So how long were Which, you working with your father in the tannery where – I guess this actually makes a little bit more sense now because that ability for you to categorize these feelings – did you work for your father for a certain amount of time where you had, to, you had to say, okay, this is really gross, I don't want to do this, but this is my responsibility? Did you work for him long enough to just get used to be able to separate those feelings? Just so. I, everybody, I'm the firstborn of six. Perhaps you were not aware that mm -hmm. I have two brothers and three sisters. Mm -hmm. 
somehow history overlooks my five siblings, but I'm the firstborn of six. And as soon as all the little grants were able to work of some some way, we all went to work in the family business in the tannery ah. when we weren't in school. And I have to take a little sidestep there, and we'll get back to West Point. That I believe my going to West Point may indeed be the thrust of our conversation because there are so many limbs on that tree trunk getting to the top of the tree. But it's a lark to me to tell, tell you about this. We all went to school, such as was afforded in Georgetown, and we worked in the tannery. Now, my father was a, a successful, very successful businessman. He was a self-made man. By the time I became a teenager, 13, 14 years old, father owned a, a very successful tannery, operated it. He also had a livery business, cartridge business, pickup delivery, not only for the tannery supplies, but for other freight in the area. He was a contractor, a couple of, of uh, really good stories about my childhood uh, as a lad of nine or ten are involved in that. But father had the cartage business, livery business, grocery business, uh, to some limited extent had a large farm uh, upon which we had, I think it was uh, 60 acres of oak trees because you used the bark of the oak tree to make the tannin chemical and acids to process the hides into leather and the color of the leather and what use the leather is going to be made of. You know, there's a different leather for shoes is quite different from the leather you use in a, a harness or a saddle. So we had a number of different products in the tannery and all of these other businesses. Once we got beyond being a tot, and we could actually do a little something. All the little grants were involved in Father's tannery. I must needs tell you, though, Father was a self-educated man. He had, in total, maybe, maybe a year of schooling. But my mother, Hannah Simpson Grant, uh, her family had immigrated to Georgetown in southern Ohio, extreme southern Ohio in Brown County from western Pennsylvania. Her father and her stepmother, he was a farmer, had some 600 acres, very wealthy farmer, and moved into Brown County. Now, I have to tell you two things, talk out of both sides of my mouth at once. Sure. The, the, the people in Georgetown, it was peopled by primarily folks from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. If you look at your map, those are the three states that surround that southeastern section of Ohio across the Ohio River. Right. So Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. States were people who wanted to live in a free state instead of a slave state. So they emigrated over in, across the Ohio and got as far in and not far in and at all and started Georgetown. The rest of the people, for the most part, who populated uh, Georgetown, Ohio, were from western Pennsylvania. So that's the, the social milieu and mix that I grew up in. And, and I say that so you have an idea of where I grew up. And there are some folks who say, I, in fact, one of my earliest biographers in, I think, 1868 said, General Grant has the 
intonations and inflection of a man of the South. I have been accused from time to time, you don't sound like you're from up north. Well, my reply in jest at first is, well, what does a person from up north sound like? <laughs> and I then think- after I get the the, the, the usual uh, well, uh, and then I, I tell them what I just told you. And yes, I do have a sound of a southern voice because most of the people among whom I grew up the first 17 years of my life were from I'm- Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and some from western Pennsylvania. And I went to school for a year in Maysville, Kentucky, which is just across the Ohio River. Went to school for a year, most better part of the year in Ripley, Ohio. And I was also always making deliveries as far away as Louisville, Kentucky. So my exposure to the South, and, and I'll go back to pointing out that where I was born on the Ohio River, is Mason and Dixon's line. I grew up in just about, if you look at a map, the southernmost part of the northern half of our country at that time. You had a nice mix of everybody where you were. Indeed. So that's why I sound like I do. (laughs) But we, we, in going to school, there was a little school right across the road from our home there in Georgetown, a brick building that Father built in 1821, and then he added to it in 1826, and then he added a third part in 1828. So we grew up in a a nice brick home. But Father was self-educated. He lived with some people when his father, who was a a, a drunkard, Noah Grant, claimed to be a, a Revolutionary War captain, but no one's ever been able to find any record of his military service. Considering the success that the people that you're describing in your family have had, I mean, your dad's a self-made man, who knows, maybe he was. I mean, you've got a a bunch, it sounds like a bunch of people in your family that were actually very successful in pretty much whatever they took on. Indeed, we've enjoyed success, and that goes back to half and half, I think, as with anyone. I come from a good stock of people who have enjoyed success. And then the environment. There's heredity and there's environment. And my heredity was strong. My environment was strong because my mother, Hannah Simpson Grant, was very well educated. And father became educated, but that takes me back to the road, the path I was walking earlier. Mother could read very well. Father had a rudimentary education, just a few months of school, maybe a year of school altogether. When his, his father, Noah Grant, his wife died, and they, he had six children, and he, he kept a couple of them and farmed the rest of them out, one of them being my father, to a Judge Todd up in Ravenna, Ohio. And Judge Todd was very well educated, obviously, And his wife, Mrs. Todd, took a particular interest in my father and taught him how to read and worked with him in reading. Father had a good, very good intellect. And, you know, there's a difference between intellect and intelligence. Intellect is what you're born with. Intelligence is what you do with that raw intellect. So father developed a strong intellect into an equally strong intelligence, widely read, man, classics, uh, read of all subject matter. In fact, he had 
as I recall, 23 books in our home, which was uh, the largest library in Brown County, which is a large county. Father valued and mother valued education, highly prized it. So we, at age five, we were in school and went to the one across the road for a year or so and then moved over a few squares uh, away to the Dutch Hill School, a brick one-room schoolhouse with Chilton White as our teacher, John D. White as our teacher, uh, who wore out a bunch of hickory switches on me over the (laughs) next six, seven years. But when we weren't working, as I've laid out the plat for you, when we weren't working as children, we were in school. And that both the, the education and the work ethic more so than the need, Father could have easily hired men and indeed hired a number of men to work for him. But it was important to him and Mother. He wanted to get you involved. He but, wanted us all involved and kept us involved. Let me ask now, you about that. Let, I want to ask you about that specifically because you're, you're, uh, there's something you're saying that I'm trying to figure out. You were talking about you know intellect and intelligence and your environment. And it sounds to me that you like you have a lot of respect for your father, just overall love and respect. And your your father obviously tried to bring you up in business where he was extremely successful. And although in everything else in your life you appear to be unstoppable, it doesn't seem like when you went into business in between your time in the military that that things went very well. But you grew up around alas. that. Alas, <laughs> alas, and alas. Well, I will I will address that squarely. Okay. Let's go back to. I can knock two birds off a fence with one pebble. Okay. How I got into the academy and my would-be attempts at being a successful businessman, none of which were successful. That morning, Father said, I need you to work in the tannery. Mm -hmm. Well, I said, I stiffened. And I'm, I'm an impassive person, or so I've been told, but I must have frowned. And it was at that moment that I knew, that Father knew, that I knew, that he knew there was no one else to work. In the past, he had always let me, whenever possible, to do something besides work in the tannery. I would hire one of my school chums for a half dime, and they would go do my work in the beam room while I would drive one of the delivery wagons or I would go out on the, the farm and work at, and plow and work in the crops. And I want to emphasize that nobody got out of work. I couldn't pay a friend a half dime, and I didn't work. I paid a friend a half dime to work at my job in the beam room or some other equally distasteful job in that stinking tannery that I can still smell. <laughs> it singed my nostrils. Uh, I would go, I'd go out and work somewhere else just as hard just as long so just something that you getting prefer. out something I, I much preferred well on that particular day i knew that that father knew he couldn't get anybody else so as we're walking across the road and the tannery is just it is still there to this day father asked me Liz, do you want to work in the tannery and i turned 
and I said, Father, I hate the tannery. And and I, I seized the moment, and I drew myself up to my full five feet, one inch height, and, and my 117 pounds, and I snapped, Father, I will work for you until I am one and 20 years of age, but not a day longer. And Father cocked his head to one side, and he said, well, Liz, I, I don't want you to work in the tannery at all if you don't, don't like it so much. What would you do if you didn't work in the tannery? And I said, I'd like to be a downriver trader on the riverboat. Because I've seen a lot of that, making deliveries to Ripley, Ohio, on the river, going across the river to Maysville, going to school there, going as far as Louisville, Kentucky, and seeing the riverboats there. Of course, it was thrilling, the pageantry and the noise, that sight, sound, color, sure. and so forth. And uh, I was very enamored of that. Thought I might even want to be a riverboat captain. Well, my father, of course, and he's telling me this in later years, father was thinking, I didn't raise my son, my firstborn son, and he highly pride. He would drag me around the town when I was just a tot. So here's my Ulysses. That boy's going to be something someday, and so forth and so on. He wore out his friends, patience would tell him <laughs> how great I was. But he told me that when I said I'd like to be a downriver trader, that I hadn't raised my oldest boy to indulge and fall into those two Ds of life on the river, degradation drinking which include drinking said well if you didn't do that what would you do and i said and i turned and looked in the direction of his farm those fields out there and i drew myself up i must have looked ridiculous he told me later he couldn't he could hardly keep him smiling but i said i should like to be a farmer yes i would like to be a man of the earth, and bring things forth. And Father told me later that he said, well, I thought at the time, I've got even less confidence in your ability to farm than I do my disgust in your work in the river. <laughs> so that was out too. So he said, well, if you didn't do that, what would you do? And I said, I shrugged my shoulders. And I said, well, I could always go to college. I'm good in math. And my father said, well, let's be about business. Go to work. And I I thought no more of it. Well, he he didn't let it go. Now, Father knew that I I wasn't going to work in that tannery, but he also knew, which I, I expect goes back to what I said earlier about Brown County and Georgetown, Ohio, there on the Ohio River, close to Cincinnati, which was already being called the Queen City, and the jumping-off place are very close to the jumping-off place for Western expansion. Father who was very astute, knew that with our country exploding to the West, and that's, I think, the, the best descriptor for it, it was exploding westward, that a man who could build the infrastructure that was going to be needed, the roads, the bridges, the buildings, the man who could do that had a life assured. He had a life guaranteed. He was always thinking well, like a businessman. He was. Yeah, he was. He was a natural. Well, there were only two schools in the country at that time. Indeed, when I started West Point, it was the only school in America, only college in America that gave an engineering degree. Very shortly after I began studies there, 
Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute and also in New York began to issue degrees in engineering. So father thought, well, I'll, I'll see if I can get him an appointment to the United States Military Academy. It'll be a degree in engineering. And there was another reason I suspect may have been equally as strong. It was free. And father, as his friends were like to want to say, Jesse Grant would chase a dollar to hell. So father was known to be close with his money, as well as a good businessman. Being free was very appealing to him. And indeed, at that time, one did not have to serve any military service after graduation. Indeed, several of my classmates immediately resigned upon graduation in forty thirty. It's incredible, uh, like, all of that that happened for you to get to West Point. And I didn't know that it was yeah. free. Why was it free? Well, Thomas Jefferson came up, as I understand the idea. After the Revolution, he felt that we needed to have a professional corps of officers. There was a great deal of opposition to that. Indeed, there were two attempts over the years. One, while I was first attending in 1839, two attempts in Congress to close it down. David Crockett opposed the military academy. Just a one noteworthy person that I think of who did not want us to have a, a school for professionals, military officers. That's the, thing, the objection was that if we had a school that taught only warfare and developed a professional officer corps, that we would be priming a group of men who would be able to take over the country in a military coup. And one has but to look at to our neighbor to the South, South America, to see the truth in that of mm. military coups, one after the other. But I think good sense prevailed, and it was not closed down. But West Point was started to develop a professional corps of army officers to serve our country in need of crisis. Did you end up with an engineering degree then? Yes. Considering everything that you did after that, I'm assuming that you graduated first in your class, right? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> I, I, uh, I graduated 21st out of 39. But I should like to tell you, Mr. Dean, that when we started on the plane, the class of 43, in June of 1839, there were 100 young men camped on the plane. Now, in those days... You had to camp for three months on the plane in tents and lead the military life before you were allowed to take the entrance exam in September, huh. which I didn't care. I, I didn't care for that. But a hundred young men began the class of 43. And by the time we began classes, we were down to 76. By the time we graduated four years later, we were down to 39. So I like to point out two things. First, did I graduate 21st out of 39 or 21st out of 100? <laughs> well, I will, I'll tell you this. This is what I'll tell you before you tell me the second thing. Your dad for sure would have said that you graduated 21st out of 100 because he knew how to sell things. He was a businessman. Well, he, would, he, would, he knew promotion. <laughs> the, the other matter I like to lift up is I like to think that I graduated in the bottom half of the top half of the class. Yeah. 
Well, and yeah. actually, to be, to be yeah. quite honest with you, when I said that you were first, I actually knew that you weren't. As I said, I've, I've read quite a bit about your life, and I think that's fascinating that you finished 29 of 39, even if we go with the 39 number, because it goes directly back to what you were saying about intelligence and intellect. You know, in our time, college is very normal, and um, I'd say probably most people go to some sort of college. And there's a lot of them that get out of there and they can't get jobs and they don't do anything. And then other ones that have the same education or less and do extraordinary things. And it just goes back to that, what you're saying. You know, I mean, it depends what you do with what you have. The person that graduated first, I'm just curious, do you know who that person was? A Benjamin Franklin Buell. Okay, so not Anybody? actual Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> No, not Benjamin Franklin, and not no no relation to uh, Don Carlos Buell, General Buell, B.F. Buell. Did that person? He, he I don't know anything going, about him. Did he do anything extraordinary? No, he he led a good life. He was in the war. It was in the military. He left and civilian. Then he went back in the war. West Point was responsible for changing your name, weren't they? Well, there is uh, some confusion about that that I'd like to clear up. Please. A father found out that there was an opening at the academy that Bartlett Bailey had uh, been asked to leave. And he wrote a letter to Senator Tom Morris of Ohio and asked him to appoint his son, Ulysses. And Tom Morris said, I'd, and they were good friends, had been friends for years. Now, my father considered himself quite the politician, organized debate clubs and so hmm. forth, and wrote a lot for the local paper and was a, a very politically active man. First, he was a Whig. For first, he was a Jackson Democrat. Then he became a Whig. And Tom Morris replied to father, I'd like to help you, Jesse, but I've appointed my quota, but I know who can appoint uh, Ulysses, and that's Congressman Tom Hamer from Georgetown. He's another one of those folks that had immigrated from western Pennsylvania as a schoolteacher in Georgetown, and once he got there, he read law and became an attorney and then got elected to the Ohio State Legislature and was going to be Speaker of the House there, actually, and then he was uh, elected to United States Congress, and he had decided not to run for re-election after three terms, so he was leaving Congress. Back about 10 years prior to that, when I was a lad of about six or seven years old, one evening in a debate society that Father had organized, he and Tom Hamer, they were good friends, he and Tom Hamer were debating about Andrew Jackson and the National Bank, whether we should have one or not. Hamer was a to-the-bone Jacksonian Democrat, and my father was a strong one, too. But Hamer was an attorney by that time, and he opposed. He was with Jackson. He opposed the establishment of a National Bank. My father was a businessman and wanted that money available. So he supported a national bank. Well, it got testy, and they nearly came to blows. Wow. Well, they didn't. They didn't speak to each other for the years after that. And now, father has to ask for an appointment. Tom Morris forwarded the letter to Tom Hamer, and Hamer approved the appointment. He was a very gracious man. He he buried the hatchet with father and. They became, again, close friends for the remaining years of his life. I was with him in the Mexican War in Mexico City when he died. He knew 
Well, he, he thought he knew that my first name was Ulysses because everybody called me Liz or Ulysses or Ulysses. People who didn't like me called me useless. <laughs> but uh, I never cared much for the name Ulysses. So he put down as my first name Ulysses. Now, this is a man who hasn't had anything to do with my family in 10 years or so. And he thought, because according to custom, when I was born in 1822, the firstborn son, his middle name is his mother's maiden name. Which is Simpson, keep, right? Yeah, which would be Simpson. And uh-huh. it kept the mother's family name alive. Very, very nice custom. Uh, but I wasn't named according to custom. Family lore has it that I was named by drawing names out of a hat <laughs> because they couldn't agree what to name me. And the, the names drawn out were Hiram and Ulysses. See, my first name is Hiram. That was the first name out of the hat. The second name was Ulysses. That was my step-grandmother's choice and my father's choice because they both loved Greco-Roman mythology. And there's some, I think, some strong belief there really was Ulysses and the Iliad and so forth. Right, but, right. Uh, he, he, he was involved with the Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. So is it prophetic that I was named after a man, a great general in Greek and Roman mythology? I, that's not for me to say. Hiram was my father's choice, uh, grandfather's choice. Grandfather said he wanted me, wanted that baby to have a good biblical name. Well, Hiram's only mentioned once or twice in the Bible. Actually, Hiram was Hiram king of Tyre, which was the neighboring kingdom to Solomon. And Hiram king of Tyre was best friends with Solomon and provided those cedars of Lebanon in Solomon's beautiful famed temple. That's Hiram. That's the Hiram I'm named after. This grandmaster Hiram Abiff, who was the the uh, the master mason on the building of Solomon's temple. But and nobody called you Hiram. Well, I asked people. My teachers would call me Hiram, but my family and my friends all called me Liz. And so then, but, when you went into but, West Point, it was none of those. Well, when, no, because when Hamer got the the notification he got it on the last day he was in office and this is another one of the great ironies of my life he had to be out of the office that day when he got a notification well how many people will stop moving if you've got to be out of the building that day uh and read your mail right but hamer hamer did and had he not read the mail that day thinking reasonably so well i'll just read all this mail in a few days when I've got time. But he sat down and read it and saw the appeal that Morris had forwarded to him. So he had to sit down right then and write the appointment to oh, wait the I next see. day. I could, so he wouldn't have had the authority. So there was some, some urgency there. He so didn't have time. He had to guess. He had to do it right then or not do it at all. Gosh. And he, he wanted to do it. So not having contact with me or the family for a decade... He thought my first name was Ulysses. He thought my middle name was my mother's maiden name was Simpson. But to obfuscate things further, he didn't write Simpson. He wrote S. Ulysses S. Grant. And that is what stuck. Well, when I got to the academy, on the way, I had found out that everybody at the academy gets a nickname. 
I had a brand new trunk that one of my cousins had given me with brass nail heads in the top of the trunk with my initials. So with the name Hiram Ulysses Grant in glaring brass letters on top of my trunk was Hug. <laughs> so it wasn't just and, written on a piece of paper. Like, it's stamped into gold. Well, now, don't, you, don't confuse what was on my trunk was H-U-G, which is indeed my name, Hiram Ulysses Grant. But on the appointment papers, the official United States War Department document, it said Ulysses S. Grant. So when I found out on the Hudson River, sailing from New York City upriver to the academy, about nicknames, I paid a sailor another half dime to go below and pull all those nail heads out of the top of that trunk because I could only imagine with a shutter where those cadets would go with initials H-U-G. They would not have been kind with my nickname. And I'd already started signing things, Ulysses H. Grant, to try to keep that hug issue from becoming dominant. When I got to the academy, I checked in at Rose Hotel across from the academy, presented myself to the enrolling officer, Commandant of Cadets, which was Charles Ferguson Smith, who later served under me at Donaldson and Shiloh on my staff. So you must picture the situation, Mr. Dean. I'm someplace I didn't want to be. I'm five feet, one inch tall and I weigh 117 pounds. Now, the minimum height to get into the academy was five feet. So I barely was tall enough to get in. I was a child. I'd just turned 17 just weeks before, and I'm someplace I didn't want to be. And Charles Ferguson Smith is 6'2 or 6'3 inches tall, towering over me. Well, I presented myself, and he said, Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, we've been expecting you. I said, Well, actually, that's, that's not my name. And he looked over the paper at me across that table, and he said, oh. And then he, he tinted his fingers together, tips to tips, and in the most endearing and warm manner said, pray, Mr. Grant, what is your name? And I told him, Hiram Ulysses Grant and, and so forth. And I said that we really need to change that. Well, he let me extrude enough verbal nonsense as far as he was concerned. Then he, he unfolded like a carpenter's rule, towered over me and roared at me, Sir, and I will spare you the histrionics and the volume, but he said, Sir, and he snatched up that paper and pointed a very long, long as a bayonet, I thought, finger at that paper right in my face. And he roared, Sir. The United States Army says that your name is Ulysses S. Grant. And Ulysses S. Grant, by God, you are. Now, if your mother and father want to call you Hiram, they can go down to the courthouse and change your name. <laughs> but, but for now, Mr. Grant, you are Ulysses S. Grant. Do I make myself clear? And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he roared, dismissed, and I thankfully beat a retreat, the first one in my life, in the Army. So, anyway, I thought, I can get that changed later. Now, it's interesting to note there was another U.S. grant in that hundred I referenced. It was a fellow from New York State 
Wow, I didn't know that. He was one of those, as I recall, that dropped out before we ended summer camp and took our entrance exam. The next day in the administration building, when the new roster of cadets was, there were only about 300 cadets in the academy at that time. Mm-hmm. And the third and fourth year men, well, second, third, and fourth year men were lined up, gathered around the bulletin board. And there was a skinny, redheaded fellow who was a fourth year man who ran his finger down that list and came, he stopped at mine, I'm told. Now, this is one of these things that you must take with a proverbial grain of salt. <laughs> I'm told that this this man, this cadet, stopped at my name and said, well, 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 it seems we have ourselves, now looking at Ulysses S. Grant, and Uncle Sam Grant. Now, Cadet and later General Sherman vehemently denies that he ever said such a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I have it on reliable information that fourth-year cadet Sherman, William T. Sherman, was the one who first uttered Uncle Sam Grant. For a while, I was called United States Grant, and I was all right with that. For a while, I was called Uncle Sam Grant, and I was all right with it. For a while, I was called The Girl. The Girl? Uh, The Girl, because as it was said at the time, of course, uh, to say again, I was five feet one inch, Uh, 17 pounds, and it was said that my features were described as delicate, and I was called... that way you grew the thick beard? Well, it it could be a contributing factor. I will not say more than that. That did, I was not all right with that, but it didn't last long. And then it became Uncle Sam, and then it got shortened to Sam. So I like to say that Ulysses S. Grant is my Army issue name. Gosh. And my nickname is Sam. My real name is Hiram Ulysses Grant. Now, I want to stress something here. Okay. All, all this bunkum, all this about... Ulysses Simpson Grant. Simpson is nowhere in the mix, Mr. Dean. Tom Hamer, redheaded Tom Hamer from Brown County, Ohio, did not write Simpson on the papers. He wrote Ulysses S. So from the beginning of all of that legendary name, Simpson was never anywhere to be found. That has always been an assumption on the part of everyone. I'm told that I'm fabled in legend and lore, even songs, which is ironic because I'm tone deaf, totally tone deaf. But in, in song and tale, I am regaled as Ulysses Simpson Grant. And no. Simpson is, is nowhere to be found. I wrote my wife letters over the years, two or three letters. I have an S in the middle of my name that I have no idea what it stands for. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to look back at all these stories. I mean, even the na- the the name and 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 that that person standing up and screaming at you like there are so many things that could have happened that would prevented you from moving forward and would have completely changed history. I mean, even this name, if you had argued that point, who knows? Maybe he thought you were too difficult to go through and 
you know, when you're thinking about going to West Point, your desire was really not to be there. It was like your fifth choice after river boating and doing something else. And if you had been a couple inches shorter and if Bart Bailey had not opened up that spot, and of course, probably the thing that could have easily changed the direction that the way you went is that you had a good father that was trying to raise you in the trade of business. I mean, a lot of people would have gone that way. Any of these could have caused you to not go the direction, and it would have completely changed history. Well, and there was a, there's a little matter of a fight on the parade ground in my first year there. There was a fellow who was considerably taller than I was. Of course, it being five feet one inch, it doesn't take much for someone to be considerably taller than one. Right. But this fellow's father was a career officer, and he liked to, well, frankly, he just wanted to bully me. When we got called to ranks, which was all the time during the day, they really liked to have us get into rank formation. But this fellow would shoulder me aside and just make it a point to push me around. Now, the first time it happened, first time or two, I... I thought, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be where I am, and just taking assessment of the situation. But the second or third time it happened, I told him, sir, if you do that again, I will thrash you. (laughs) And the next day we had drill, and he shouldered me aside. And I told him, I clenched my fist, and I said, sir, I told you the next time you did that, I was going to thrash you, and, sir, I am going to do just that. And I walked him. I jumped on him, and I walked him. Now, the fight was broken up when some other cadets, well, the, the ones immediately around were enjoying the fight because I threw this fellow on the ground, and I was pounding him. He was hollering for help. And some other ranking upperclassmen came and pulled us apart. They had to pull me off of it. Were, were you 117 pounds at this point? Yes. But you were still it's thrashing right people at 117? <laughs> well, it's it, what that old thing about been around a long time. It's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Isn't that the truth? That's right. That, that big fellow was not expecting the fury that descended upon him. I think that that could be said was, throughout your life at a lot of the fights that you've been involved in. It could be. Also, I'd like to point out I, I do not like to say anything approaching braggadocio, but I, I have I have a reputation of being very strong, uh, strong beyond my size. Mm. But this fellow, this particular fellow, whose name need not be mentioned, he was not expecting the strength and the fight, as I said, that descended upon him. When they pulled us apart, I was still trying to get at him, and he was more than glad to be shut of my hospitality. And that didn't happen anymore after that. Of course, they didn't. It didn't go beyond the parade ground. The upperclassmen, I think, knew what had been going on. And it was one of those little tests, I think, too, that, uh, or at least it was. I think it may have been viewed as a test by the upperclassmen. The fellow that was uh, the recipient of my temper didn't think it was a test. He he didn't think I'd do what I did. After that, Mr. Dean, I never had anybody challenge me like that. You know, this reminds me of something Uh, that happened later in your life. There was a time when there were questions about what your role should be in the military, in the Civil War, and some people were saying that you didn't listen to orders or whatever, and Lincoln said, I can't spare a man that's willing to fight. And so we're going to keep Grant around because he's willing to fight. Do you recall 
something being said along those lines? Well, that harkens to what President Lincoln said about me after Shiloh. There were calls for me to be sacked because of the casualty numbers at Shiloh mm-hmm. and uh, relieved of command. And, but uh, Mr. Lincoln declined, uh, even though under heavy pressure, he declined to replace me in, in the command of the Army. It was a Pennsylvania congressman who demanded of him at a meeting in the executive mansion that he replace me. That I need, I did not, did not need to be in command. And President Lincoln took his glasses, spectacles off, and said, "I can't spare this man. He fights." That, that's one of the uh, things that uh, about me that President Lincoln said that I very much cherish. But President Lincoln knew that I would fight. I had already taken Donaldson seven weeks earlier in Shiloh, and he also knew that. Shiloh, the casualty numbers at Shiloh, in total for both sides, 23,746 killed and, killed and wounded. Uh, actually, it was about 4,000 that were killed, dead on the field. And I, I should like very much to point out that at Shiloh, from 5 o'clock on Sunday morning, April the 6th, to 5 o'clock Monday afternoon, April the 7th, with an interlude of some several hours for sleep during a torrential downpour. But within 36 hours, on that uh, area there next to the Tennessee River in uh, Middle Tennessee, west, the river separates Middle from West Tennessee at Pittsburgh Landing, there were more than 100,000 men involved between the two armies, over 30 square miles of territory. And the casualties of 23,746 killed, missing, and wounded were more casualties in 36 hours than the United States had suffered in all three of the wars it had been in. Wow. And that was 36 because hours. Within, within 36 hours. And you have, you have several hours that there wasn't any fighting, that the men were asleep. But from 5 a.m. on Sunday morning to 5 p.m. on Monday afternoon, there were 23,746 men killed and wounded. Now, in the Revolution and the War of 1812 and the Mexican War, all three of those wars combined there had been a total of killed and wounded of 23,215. So it's less by about 500. So Shiloh exceeded in 36 hours oh my goodness. the number of killed and wounded Americans in three wars. See, that's why it's no wonder so, that Lincoln got along with you so well because, I mean... It appears to me that you're the kind of person that sees a job and gets it done regardless of the cost. And when you look at Lincoln, he wasn't on the battlefield dodging musket balls. But the courage that it would take to have that kind of those kind of casualty numbers reported and then be able to look at your ability to help the cause and think, we got to keep him around even though this will be the most unpopular decision I ever make in the moment – it's no wonder you guys got along. The purpose and the 
know, the ability to, to stay focused on one purpose and, and do what mattered and do what was right. Was Lincoln like that in your eyes? I think you're correct in that. I will tell you what others say about me. Uh, it is said about me that I have the ability to see on a battlefield or indeed in an entire campaign of where everybody is on both sides and where everybody needs to be. Now, this is critical in a battle, hmm. but it is, it's really no less critical in a campaign, which doesn't involve battle after battle. But the life of a soldier is hours and days of boredom punctuated by moments of terror that I have the ability to be able to, to see on a battlefield who needs to be where and, and what is happening, or indeed elevate that to an entire campaign of where we need to go and what we need to be doing. Now, I am determined, as the president knew, I knew where I, whether it be a battle or whether it be a campaign, I knew where I wanted it to end. I had the, the goal in mind at all times. Now, how I got there either physically on the road on march in a battle or how i got there figuratively speaking of maneuvers and and movements and marches and counter marches in the larger picture of a campaign strategy is the overall campaign tactics is the the what well, strategy is a macrocosmic approach tactics is the microcosmic approach what the men on the ground are doing applying that larger strategy. And I always had in mind what I wanted to accomplish, that what would, where we would be and what we would be doing when the smoke of battle cleared or the dust of the march settled. You know, this makes a lot of sense because when you, when you look at your success on the battlefield, it appeared that regardless of whether you were winning or not, I mean, you were making pretty much the best decisions that could be made, regardless of the size and the scope or even the time. And then as soon as you were promoted to the general of all the armies, it appears that you had the same success. You were able to move all the pieces throughout the whole country around at the same time with the same level of skill as an, individ as an individual battle. I mean, that's the way it looks on the outside to me. Is that the way it felt to you on the field? Yes. Yes, I, I knew where I wanted to go, and I knew what I wanted to do. As I rose through the ranks from a colonel of volunteers with the 21st Illinois, I was only a colonel for seven weeks. My career as a colonel began on June the 18th, dated June the 15th of 1861, to August the 7th of 1861 when I was notified, actually by reading the newspaper, the Missouri Democrat, my chaplain, Chaplain Crane, brought, came running up to me with the paper, yelling, Colonel, Colonel, or maybe I should say General, i got something you need to read. And on the front page of the Missouri Democrat from two or three, four days, I don't recall, earlier, it certainly wasn't that day because we didn't get papers that fast. It listed me as the w number one of the four or the six men who'd been promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers. So I was a, a colonel from June 15th to August the 5th. And then I was a colonel of volunteers from August the 5th to 61 to February the 
16th uh, or 17th of uh, 62, because after Donaldson fell, President Lincoln appointed me as a major general of volunteers, and the Senate confirmed it very quickly. I was a major general of volunteers. I had two stars. Brigadier General has one. Major General's got two stars, and I was a major general of volunteers until Vicksburg fell. Now, I was a major general of volunteers at Shiloh, and Shiloh was a draw, really, uh, by the rules of war that, so to speak, that we followed, the people who are in possession of the field after a battle are the victors. Well, we were in possession of the field the morning of April the 8th at Pittsburgh Landing, but we'd been pretty badly mauled. I didn't pursue Beauregard, who was in command after Johnston was killed. Albert Sidney Johnston had been killed the day before. And it turned out Albert Sidney Johnston was the highest-ranking officer, American officer killed in combat during the war. But we didn't pursue Beauregard, and I was criticized about that. But we'd been pretty much mauled, as had the Confederates. And I think Sherman articulated it best when responding to the criticism for not following up. He said, we had just been treated to two days of the best of their Southern hospitality. (laughs) And we felt that if we'd had quite enough, and if they would leave us alone, we'd leave them alone, which was what happened. I I wouldn't, as the war progressed, I, I did not do that. But after that cataclysmic Armageddon that was Shiloh, after two days, both armies, the men, the surviving soldiers in both armies were in shock over what they had, they all to a man felt miraculously survived. One soldier that I know of described Shiloh as the gates of hell had been opened. And as at the wilderness, one of General Lee's uh, top subordinates had, as the battle of the wilderness, the second day was over, it got dark. This aide said to General Lee, it seems as if the gates of hell had been opened and we've been allowed to look inside. Well, that, that makes me uh, want to ask you something about that. You're, you're at Shiloh. And this battle has, as you said, 23,746 casualties. And uh, this may be a difficult question to answer, but I I guess I still want to ask it because I don't understand how somebody continues after that. I I tried to get into the military and I wasn't allowed to go because of uh, something with my vision. And so I've never been on a battlefield. When you are on a battlefield like that, the battle is over 36 hours later and everybody's tired. What does the battlefield look like? What does it sound like? You are about to hear some gruesome realities of war, but as awful as war is, the dispute between North and South was not a simple disagreement. The winner would determine the fate of an entire race of people. Without Grant as the opposing force against the unstoppable Robert E. Lee, slavery could have existed in the Americas for another 50 or 100 years, maybe more. How many would have suffered then? In the next episode, you're going to put the pieces together as Grant explains how he was able to move from battle to battle without fear and without ever losing confidence in the outcome. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.